Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful place to worship where we hear the birds singing and that remind us of your loving watch care for the sparrow. And Father, we pray right now for, for Mira. You give her peace and you be close to Young as he's in the, the emergency room. Just pray that they would take care of him and you give them wisdom and skill and that, that he'd recover quickly. And Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us a, a little bit more deeply today, a little bit more clearly, that, that we would see you for who you really are, and that that would change us, it transform our relationships, that it would fill us with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It's a couple weeks ago that a neighbor was walking past my garage when he looked at my garage and he saw that there were bikes hanging in there. And I, I went out with my girls on a little walk and he, he said, do you mountain bike? I said, uh, yeah, I do. Well, I did about 20 years ago. And it's, I haven't done much over the past at least 15 years. And the, that bike is from when I rode in the bike-a-thon back 20 years ago. It's it's really old bike and yeah. He's like, well, I'm getting into mountain biking. I just got a new bike and I go out on these trails and I thought, okay, I want to make friends. I'm going to go mountain biking with him. So last Sunday morning at 6 a.m. went out mountain biking, had a great time, but my front brakes weren't working. And when I came back and my mom found out that I rode my old bike and the brakes weren't working, she said, that's it. You are getting a new bike. You have to get a new bike so that you can make friends with your neighbors. I said, okay. Um, I, I don't, and she's very generous, and, and was, she went into a bike shop and found out that they cost about the price of a used car, so she looked on Craigslist and found another bike that was for a tall guy, it was a nice mountain bike, and to make a long story short, this past Thursday, I went to meet a guy by the name of Bill, lives by Atascadero Lake, and as I went there, I had this plan, because I talked to a friend about is this bike worth it? He said, well, it's a high-end bike, but it's 10 years old, and it's a mountain bike, a nice bike, but here's what it's listed for on the blue book for bicycles. So I printed that out, and I thought, okay, here's what, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll go, and he said I could take it on a test ride. I'll hand him that sheet, and I'll tell him this is what it says on blue book. I'll go for a ride, and maybe when I come back, he'll feel like generous. <laughs> so I went to him, and he listed the bike for about $500, and it was on blue book for about $260, and so I handed him that. He's like, well, that's really clever of you. So I'm not trying to pull anything tricky. He said, look, you're going to go home with this bike today. I was like, oh, well, that's really nice of you. Okay, so I went on this ride. I, I, was, I said, wow, this is an amazing bike. This will really help me. The front brakes worked perfectly. So this is worth it. This is worth it. So I come back, and I pull in there. He's like, how was it? We were talking about it for a second. And then I said, okay, so what would you see as a fair price? He said, well, to be honest, the rock bottom number in my mind was $400. And I said, well, you know, I was thinking since you're giving these extra things that, that maybe $360 would be something that you'd be willing to take. I said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do 360 And he said, since you're such a nice guy, I'll do 350 and then we got to talking a little bit more, and I said, well, I actually don't have perfect change. I only had 20, so he's like, well, we'll do 340. And before long, he found out that I was a pastor, 
and that we had this community farm here. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do 300. And you give that 40 to your local church. Who sells things like that? Who has that kind of attitude about a sale? I was like, are you sure I'm going to walk out of here? You're going to feel like I, have you, do you feel good about this? I even handed him, I was like, here's 360. He's like, no, I said 300. Take the 40 to church and keep the other 20. Who has that kind of attitude? And then he was telling me about how you can take my kayaks out anytime on a Tascadero Lake. You know, this is what America needs is more people like Bill. More people who are genuinely looking out for the good of others. We've been looking at Revelation chapter 14. And we looked at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11 last week that says that they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, who have the, the mark of his name. And, and we saw that, that this rest, this lack of rest, is, is a terrible reality. And we saw the opposite of that as an invitation to rest given to us by the Lamb, by Jesus. Go with me again to that invitation to rest. We're going to look again at this, this idea of no rest day or night or more in reality, we're going to look at how to experience rest. Because this is obviously really important. We don't want to be a part of that group that has no rest day or night because that's a miserable thing. Last night, Leah was doing a bit of tossing and turning and she said, just pray that I can sleep, please. Sleep is so incredibly valuable. Rest of soul is even more valuable. Matthew chapter 11 And we'll just read these verses again, and we're going to hone in on a little bit different part of this. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. It says, come to me, that invitation from Jesus, come to me, all you who labor or who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you need that after this past week? How many of you experienced that this past week, that, that Jesus actually gave you rest? I hope you did. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's, here's a fascinating part that we're going to look at this. Jesus says, come, learn of me. And then he does something. Charles Spurgeon points out that, that he points out what he is at heart, what the, the motivation is, who, what, what drives Jesus, what gets him out of bed in the morning, what, what motivates Jesus, what he is in heart. This is the one time that Jesus gives us this picture of what God himself is like in heart. And what does he say? I'm meek, or I'm gentle and lowly of heart. What? <laughs> Hold up just a second. You're... You're meek? You're gentle? That sounds really weak. You know, after first service, Steve came and he told me, he said, I had a pastor friend who told me, if you, if you think meek is weak, try being meek for a week. If you think meek is weak, try being meek for a week. That's a, a tongue twister for you kids. See if you can do that 20 times fast after church. Who is it that we end up telling to be Gentle. You think about it, we might tell a child as they get a little bit older, as they're able to maneuver a little bit better, their strength is growing, we have to start telling them, look, you need to be gentle, (laughs) gentle. I remember my dad, as I got bigger and bigger, I would come home from school and I just want to 
it's a teenager, I wanted to butt chess with him. And we'd start doing that. And pretty soon he'd be like, look, you got to be gentle. I'm getting older. Just, just go easy on me. You got to be gentle. Who do we tell to be gentle? It's actually the ones with strength. It's, it's the ones who need to, to harness that strength in the right way. And Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart. Is, is Jesus weak? No, there's, there's not a bit of weakness in him. In fact, could it be that, that gentleness actually takes more strength than most anything else? It's fascinating. If you actually look at this word for uh, meekness, uh, you look at how the, the, the Greek historians have used it, and Xenophanon used meek to describe a wild horse that had been tamed. Has anybody ever tamed a wild horse before? Malin's not here. Oh, I see one hand in the back, Tracy. <laughs> oh, and Eldon. Well, what does it take to, to tame a wild horse? Either of you want to, does it take, does it take is it a short process, a long process? Takes gentleness. Takes communication. Yeah. Okay. I read a little bit about it and I've never gotten close to a wild horse before. And it's, it says it can take a long time. And it takes the horse coming to trust you. It takes that horse knowing that, that it can take orders from you and that you are trustworthy. It, it goes on to describe some other ways that it was used. This is outside of the New Testament. Plato used it to describe a victorious general who spared a conquered people. They, Plato described him as meek. Uh, Socrates said a meek person is one who can argue his case without losing his temper. Who can stand up for truth, stand up for himself, stand up for what's right without getting angry. Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, used the same word to depict someone who's upset at social injustice. However, their anger does not degenerate into revenge, vindictiveness, or retaliation. Meekness then, this author goes on to say, Ken Welliver, meekness then is strength under control. <laughs> it's it's a, a wild stallion who has been tamed to be able to be ridden on. Ridden into battle. It's, it's courageous. It's, it's not afraid of the battle. And it's able, it has rippling muscles. But it has been tamed to follow the instructions of the Master. It, that's kind of a, a beautiful picture, isn't it, of, of what meekness is, of what gentleness is. And it's fascinating. I was just thinking about this. Do you remember when Jesus is described as riding on an animal? In fact, it uses the same word for lowly to describe how he comes in the triumphal entry. And it says that's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 that the king would come lowly and riding on a colt. Check this out. Matthew and Luke are the ones who record this, but Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11 tells us when Jesus tells them to go find this colt, look at, at what he describes this colt as being like. Now remember, in order to ride on a wild colt, we're, we're learning that you have to be able to gain its trust. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 2, And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you. As soon as you have entered it, 
you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. That's the, the, the animal that Jesus rides in on the triumphal entry. He's riding on a colt who has never been ridden on before. And I need to find out from some of you, how hard is that to do? But in my understanding of what it takes to tame a horse, to, to just ride on a horse, that horse had to trust Jesus. There, there's something about Jesus. Jesus who is meek and lowly of heart. Meekness in God Himself is like God having His arms wide open. He's approachable. He's somebody that you know you can come to even though you've messed up, even though you've rebelled, even though you've done everything to hurt Him. You know that His arms are going to be open wide to receive you back. He's got gentleness in His heart. That's what drives Jesus. That's what God is all about. Gentleness and lowliness. But here's the question. Can his gentleness, his lowliness, can, can that tame me? <laughs> can, that, can that change me from the person that I am to a meek person? I'll give you an example. Um, uh, there was this program called Teen Bible Academy that Lee and I had the privilege of, of being a part of. And uh, it's this great program where you take 30 teenagers uh, and th- those of us leading the program are in our 20s, and, and parents trusted these teenagers with us for three weeks. And we take them out. The first week, we take them backpacking. And that was actually my favorite part because you get them out, and it's fun to be out in the woods, and they're out backpacking, and they're learning how to spend time with God out in nature, and they're doing some different group activities together. The second week was a week of study, and the third week was a week of service. And this one year, I remember... That these teenagers, I don't know if it was that their parents had not taught them how to live life in a way that was respectable to other human beings, or if it was simply that they lost all control because we were in our 20s and running this program, but I had had it up to here. Now, I remember going into uh, lunch, and it was at the Central Valley Christian Academy over in Modesto, and, and it was in the gym, and you have these people who have worked really hard to make these meals. And yet these teenagers are always like complaining like, oh, we have to eat this and oh, there's this and oh, that. And I'm so hungry. When are we going to eat? And all this long list of things. And, and so this is going on and we say the blessing and all of a sudden it's like this mob of kids are, are diving into the food and they're pushing each other back and they're grabbing for the food to, to fill up their plates first because they're starving. I guess they're growing. And I looked at them and I lost it. I said, you animals, get back! And I took the ones who were in the front and I made them get in the back of the line. And I had the others get to the front of the line. And I said, you guys have got to learn to put others first. And I told them. Now, was I right about them? Were they acting like animals? They were. You see, often when I'm right, I'm doing some of the worst things I've done in my life. That afternoon, I didn't have much rest. I didn't have much peace in my heart. You see, living a life that is not filled with meekness, that is not filled with gentleness, that is not filled with Christ's lowliness, leads us to unrest. And that night, I remember around worship, I said to the the kids, I said, I'm sorry. I 
I still don't want you to do what you're doing at the meals like that. That's, but how I treated you, that was totally wrong. I messed up, and I'm sorry for that. You know, it makes a big difference in our lives, how we treat people, whether we have gentleness, whether we have lowliness. And so I was thinking in the Bible about a character who you wouldn't think of as meek. In fact, Matthew Kirk described this a few weeks back. Moses, you think about the man Moses. Would you describe him as meek when he was first uh, starting off? His first 40 years of life, he's trained in the court of Pharaoh. He's trained to be the next Pharaoh. And when he wants to deliver his people, what does he do? He does what he knows how to do. He kills the man. He buries him. He's looking around. He knows how to do this. He's a warrior. Gentleness, meekness, that's not a part of Moses. He knows how to deliver his people and he's going to do it. But out of that, he has to spend the next 40 years shepherding sheep in the wilderness. And, and I love how you, when you get to the beginning of Exodus, it says that, that God comes and he shows up to Moses when Moses is at the back of the wilderness and he's shepherding his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. You think about it, after 40 years of learning to be the next Pharaoh, you're the most accomplished man in the, the nation of Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in the world. And then, to go and be a shepherd for the next 40 years, and when you're 80 years old, you don't even have your own flock of sheep to speak for what you've done for the past 40 years. You're 80 years old, and you're still shepherding your father-in-law's sheep. Somebody once said that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life learning how to be a somebody. He spent the second 40 years of his life until he was 80, learning that he was a nobody. And he spent the last 40 years of his life learning that God can do incredible things through nobodies. So you find Moses as he takes these children of Israel out into the wilderness, that God has finally trained him to become gentle and meek of heart, to become humble to become lowly in in his actions and he's learned from shepherding sheep how to treat people who are grumbling who are complaining who need this gentle treatment even though they don't deserve it go with me to exodus chapter 33 and in exodus chapter 33 the israelites have just made a terrible mistake god had given them the ten commandments and before long what are they doing at the foot of mount sinai they're dancing around a golden calf. They're worshiping this calf and saying, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And so God has Moses go down and, and let them know that, that this was a terrible mistake. And notice now when, God, when Moses goes to God, what he's pleading with God for. And this, this gives us a glimmer of, of how this transformation took place for Moses and how it can take place for me and my non-gentleness, and you, and your need to learn of Him who is meek and lowly of heart. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 13, Moses says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation 
is your people. Moses is, is now an intercessor saying, yeah, I realize they've messed up, but please consider that these are your people. Please show me your ways. I want to know you. God, I want to know what, what is it like inside of you. I mean, he's seen God deliver them from Egypt. He's seen him take, take them through the Red Sea. He's seen the, the glorious, miraculous power of God, but Moses isn't satisfied with that. He's like, but what is it that, who are you? I want to know you, and I want to know your ways. Notice God's response. Verse 14. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. We're going to be in this together, and, and being in this together will give you rest. My being with you will give you rest on this journey that you're about to go on. This, this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, these complaining Israelites, this 2 million people that you're going to have to figure out how to, how to feed, how to give them water. You're going to have to figure out all these things for them. I will be with you and I will give you rest. And we find that God's presence is with them. It, it, it's so personal. During the day, He's a cloud who's there to give them shade. And He's leading them through the wilderness. And at night, he's a pillar of fire who's there over the tabernacle to, to light the, the area, to give them warmth at night. His presence is with them there to give them rest. And notice what Numbers chapter 12 goes on to tell us about who Moses became. Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version because it captures what we're talking about here. Um, by the way, it translates the word Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was very meek, more than all the other people who were on the face of the earth. This is what Moses had become in heart as he came in contact with this God who revealed to him his ways, who revealed to him who he was in heart. And that changed Moses. So that this happens in the middle of that story where Miriam and Aaron are like, hey, who is this Moses? Why is he asserting himself? Why is he exalting himself? And Moses just goes to God with it. And it's right in the midst of that story that this description is given, that Moses was more meek than any other man on the planet. You know, the commentary on that is that meekness was considered as weakness back then. That meekness was seen as, as a character trait that, that people didn't want. You know, it kind of reminds me of back in 2015, we had different Bible study contacts that I was going out to see. And I went to see one of them who was super into the election that was taking place. And it was the primaries. And he was telling me about his favorite candidate in the primaries. And as he told me about his favorite candidate, he told me that this is the guy to get it done. Well, I said, well, what about this guy within the same party? So it's not like we're talking about the opposite party, but within the same party, what about this guy? He's like, oh, no. He's too weak. He can't get the job done. I was like, but, but in the debates, he's so nice to people, he, and he's got a lot of wisdom, and He's like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a pretty nice guy. And it seems like there's some good things about him and all that. And I, I mean, I like the guy and he, I agree with him, but he just doesn't have the strength to get this done. He's too nice. Our world is beginning to look more and more at niceness and meekness as weakness. 
And I believe we're going to be reaping the results of that more and more as we look to a sense of bravado, as we look to a sense of strength that as if that will be what will fix the problems in this world. It's not the answer. If it were, Jesus would have come not lowly and riding on a donkey. He would have come on a stallion. He would have come riding in with his, his army. He would have come to, to get rid of all the bad people in Jerusalem. But instead, as he rides over that hill, lowly and riding on a donkey, he's crying as he looks at Jerusalem and he's saying, if only you would let me, like a, a hen, a mother hen, to, to tuck you under my wings. The God of infinite power. I mean, don't look at Jesus as weak. Revelation describes him as the, li- the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's this, this God who shows up to Paul who's so brilliantly bright that it, it blinds Paul. But as, as John learns about in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, about the lion of the tribe of Judah, What happens? He hears that the Lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome to take the scroll. And as he hears that, he turns and he looks. And what does he see? Do you remember? Who's able to take the scroll? It's the Lamb. And the Lamb is standing as if slain. It's it's strength under control. The strength of a lion acting like a lamb. It's the strength of a lion who's laying down his life for others. It's It's strength that is bridled for the good of people around him. So Moses was leading the people of Israel to that place of rest. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 tells us that it was because of their unbelief that they weren't able to enter into rest immediately. So they're in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around, and they're on the verge of entering into rest into the promised land, into this, this rest that God had promised them, that they would come in and they'd find vineyards that were already growing. They would find orchards that were already producing fruit. And they'd be able to move in and get to enjoy and rest in what God had provided for them. They're on the verge of this. And God had warned them, or God had let them know in Deuteronomy chapter 2, I believe it's verse 3, that, that as they came closer, that they were going to need to buy water from their cousins, the Edomites, and to buy food from them as they entered the last little journey before they went into the promised land. Now this is important to understand because throughout their journeys through the wilderness, how did they get a drink? From the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the rock that followed them was Jesus and they were drinking from this rock throughout their journeys in the wilderness. And Moses had struck that rock at the beginning and ever after, wherever they went, there was always some sort of rocky outcropping which a a river was coming out and, and helping these two million people there in the wilderness to be able to have water. Water for themselves, water for, for their cattle. And this, this representation of how God tenderly cares for our need, how he's there for us. But, but something happens right as they're getting to the land of Edom. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. And, and we find that the Israelites, they're, they're at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they're, they're about to go into the promised land. And, and they, they've been told that, that they're going to have to buy water from the Edomites as they're on their last little bit of the journey to Canaan. 
Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Now what should they have known if the water stopped flowing? From, from a God who's cared for them for the past 40 years. He's been providing this river in the desert. What should they have known? They should have known that, that God had a plan. That He had a reason for this happening. And, and in fact, they should have been excited. You know what this means? We're not going to have to stay out here in this wilderness much longer. We're finally going to get to go to that place of rest. They should have been excited about the fact that the water stopped flowing from the rock. <laughs> How often in my life? How often in your life are you excited when things get a little bit more difficult? Because you know that God is taking care of you and He's about to show up with something beautiful and something powerful in your life. Or how often are you like me where I'm like, oh, are you serious? Why is this happening to me? Unfortunately, that's the way the Israelites react. Verse 3, And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? You just brought us out here to die, didn't you? This is something that they have again and again and again brought to Moses. And so often when Moses has heard this, what has he done? He's just turned to God. His meekness. He, he treated them with, with gentleness by turning again and again to God and saying, God, you've got to handle this. Verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to the, this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. We're thirsty. This is miserable. Moses, why did you bring us out here? Now notice, Moses does what he always does. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. This sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? It sounds like they're doing the right thing. They're turning to God in the midst of their trouble and their trial. They're turning to Him for the answer. And God says, verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you will bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. God is trying to give Moses rest by revealing the way to handle the crisis that he's going through. And, and his, his answer is, even though they are rebelling, even though they are totally miserable to be a leader of even though this is the way these people are just go and talk to the rock and and i'll send them water don't go and rebuke them don't go and tell them what miserable people they are but go and speak to the rock and let the rock bring water out now were these people being rebellious were they grumbling complaining now notice what happens and Moses and Aaron, verse 10, gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, you animals. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, let me ask you, is what Moses is saying truthful? Are they rebels? Oh, yeah. And are they going to do something that's going to bring water out of the rock? Yeah. 
Is it them that's providing the water? No. So that part is a little bit uh, not so truthful. But, but he's just telling them who they are. They're rebels. Just letting them know the dirtbags that they are. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And, and oftentimes we focus on the fact that, that he struck the rock, and that was not what he was called to do because Christ died once for sin. And it's not something that continues to happen. It's not something that, that he needs to die more than once for sins. But notice how God responds. And God holds Moses to a high standard. You see, when somebody in responsibility, somebody that's representing God, misrepresents God, it's a big deal. In fact, I just wanted to read to you something from, from Fundamentals of Education. Check this out. Fundamentals of Education, page 277. It says this, There is no form of vice, worldliness, or drunkenness. Are those some, some problematic things in people's lives? Vice, worldliness, drunkenness. There is no form of vice, worldliness, or drunkenness that will do a more baleful work upon the character, embittering the soul, and setting in train evils that overbear good than human passions not under the control of the Spirit of God. Anger, getting touched, stirred up, will never pay. How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by the unlovely character of those who claim to be Christians? Whoa. Jesus apparently really cares that that we are gentle and lowly of heart ourselves. And when I read that, it gives me pause to say, ah, I have often not treated people like that. I have have reacted and, and treated people in a way that Maybe I was right in some of the things that I, I said, calling them an animal. Another time I remember on Team Bible Academy, there was a youth pastor at a church who was supposed to arrange rides for us back from the backpacking trip. And as we're headed out to go on the backpacking trip, we're not going to have cell phone range. We're not going to have contact. I said, okay, so did you count and make sure that you have enough rides for us to get back? And the youth pastor said, it'll work out. I looked at that youth pastor and I said, I don't like the way you operate. True. I did not like the way that they operated. But that was hurtful. And years later, I had a conversation with somebody else who was upset with me about other things. And then they brought that in and they said, look, you know that that person? You hurt them years ago. You're this type of person. And, and just see the type of influence you're having on people. And it broke me to think that that my, my willingness to just speak out like that, to say, I don't like the way you operate, had had that type of impact on that person. And I called them up and I said, look, I'm sorry. I, I didn't even think that much about what I said, but it, that was hurtful. And I should never have said that to you. And Thankfully, they, they forgave me. But I recognize that, that it's true. What we say in that moment, how we treat people, it impacts them. It affects them. And it's one of the worst things we can possibly do to simply lose our temper. So, how does God treat this situation? He he doesn't show up and and rebuke 
the Israelites. You know, you guys tested Moses' patience. You've been testing his patience for 40 years. What is wrong with you guys? Instead, he shows up to Moses. He holds him to a higher standard. You know, you might have truth that other people don't have. You might understand things about the world and other people don't understand it. You know what that means? That means you're called to a higher standard. And it means that you're called to treat them with a greater level of love and compassion and gentleness than if you didn't know the truth that you know. And if the truth that you know is leading you to mistreat other people, then you are actually missing the truth. I am actually missing the truth. Look, I'm speaking to myself because I need to hear this. You can tell from the illustrations that I'm saying that, that this is something that it's all too easy for me to go the wrong direction and I need to recognize and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him who is gentle and lowly of heart. But, but watch, what, watch what God says to Moses, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. You're not going to enter into the rest that you were hoping to, Moses. You're not going to get to enter into rest because you have chosen not to have a gentle and lowly heart. But, but notice how he pinpoints what's going on in Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, because you struck the right rock twice. He doesn't say, Moses, because you spoke the way you did to them, because of your harshness of tone, because of the, the way that you lost your patience, you, you blew your temper. He doesn't point to that because the answer is not just trying to be a nicer person. That doesn't work. I've been trying that for years. I can't do it. Notice what he says. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Because you didn't trust me. You didn't believe in who I am and what I've done for you. That is the root cause of every time that I ever blow up. It's the reality that I have lost sight of how God has treated me. The compassion, the love, the grace, the mercy that is continually poured out on me. And when I lose track of that, I lose track of everything. You see, Jesus said, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now there's a great book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, or maybe it's Meek and Lowly. He says this yoke idea that, that Jesus is giving here. You know, a yoke is given to, to bring the two together. And we see that Moses was to, to have rest because of the presence of God with him. But this idea of a yoke, Jesus goes on to say, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because we might look at it as like, I don't want to take this yoke. If I become a follower of Jesus and I have to start watching out for other people's needs first, that's a difficult thing. A cattle cattle are yoked up in order to pull the plow to be able to do work. But he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And it's it's like a man who is drowning. And I just want you to imagine for a moment that that you are are drowning in the sea of of your cares, your concerns, the the troubles, the the ways that people have treated you. And, And it's like you're drowning in the midst of the sea of life. And as you're drowning, imagine that a guy comes along and he, he grabs the life jacket. He's got this life jacket and he says, hey, here you go, here's the life jacket. As he goes to give it to you, you're like, that life jacket? If I take this life jacket, 
I'm going to have to help other people who are drowning. I can't do that. I don't want the life jacket. Or he can choose to take his yoke. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It'll buoy you up above the cares and concerns of your life. It'll, it'll carry you through the trials and, and the difficulties of your life. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dane Ortland compares it also to being like helium for a balloon. The yoke is, is like what lifts us out of the, the troubles and trials. It what, it's what brings us rest in the midst of all that we're going through. In the midst of drowning. You know, the beautiful thing is that that God had taught Moses this back at the beginning before he went on this wilderness journey with the Israelites for 40 years. We'll look at this in closing in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, Exodus chapter 33, where we saw he had promised, God had promised Moses that, that I'm gonna go with you, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I, who am am meek and lowly of heart, gentle and lowly of heart. And then notice what what Moses asked for in verse 18. Moses isn't satisfied. He said, but I I just want to know what's going on in the heart of God. I just want to know who you really are. I've got to understand who you are, God. Verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. I just want to know who you are, God, because this will change everything for me. Verse 19, Then God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'm a God who's giving. I'm a God who has my arms wide open in compassion that invites everybody to come. So Moses says, but, but God goes on to say, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then verse 21, and the Lord said, here is a place for me, by me, and you shall stand upon the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So sure enough, he goes up on the mountain and in verse 34, as the Lord passes by, Moses is hidden by God in the cleft of the rock. Who was the rock that followed them in the wilderness? Jesus. He's hidden in Christ. The reality of Christ is that you already have peace with God in Christ. You know, I'm going to give you as you leave today if you'd like it's on the table over there this great article um, written in 1903 in the signs of the times stand and rejoice and and in this it gives gives practical ideas for for how to handle when people say stuff to you that sets you off (laughs) when people treat you in a way that's really difficult and i love how in this article it goes on to describe who we can be when we recognize what Christ is to us. Notice, notice this line. It says this, the Apostle Paul declares being justified by faith. How does that happen? That happens through Christ, through what he has done 
for us on the cross. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do not have this peace are liable to become irritable. If I don't have the peace, if I'm not in Christ, if I don't recognize what He's done for me, how He's treated me, then I'm not going to treat you the right way because I think that God is like me and I think that He's accusing and, and critical of other people and that's how I'm going to treat you. But if I recognize that His arms are open wide and I take His yoke upon me and I let that buoy me up and I get peace in my life, I'm no longer irritable when I'm confronted by things and I'm able to stand in His grace and to rejoice in the midst of trial and to keep my mouth shut so I don't hurt people. So Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and God reveals Himself to him in verse 6 and says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses saw who God is in character, and he's merciful, he's gracious, he's filled with compassion, and he is just. And he invites us today to come to him when we're weary and heavy laden. To take his yoke upon us. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that will give us a peace that will enable us to treat the rebels in our life, to treat the dirtbags in our life, to treat the people that are totally wrong in our life with the same compassion, the same love, the same gentleness that stirred and motivated Jesus to weep over Jerusalem, to heal, to forgive anybody who is willing to come. So I invite you to ask that Jesus would help you to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. I invite you to, to ask God to, to help the reality of what he's done for you to sink in more deeply, the reality of who he is to saturate your heart more deeply so that it impacts your relationships. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we have died and our life is hid with Christ in God. Through what Christ has done, it says we can go on, it goes on to say we can put off our old self and put away anger and malice and mistreating people because we're accepted in Jesus. The key for Moses, the key for you, the key for me is to believe. Believe in who God is and what He's done for us. To let that set you free from the need to get even, the need to watch out for yourself, to find a hiding place in Jesus. And one last story to illustrate how that turned around in my life. I was out backpacking with Matt and his brother, and, and we're having this great conversation with Matt's brother about creation, evolution, about God, and he's grappling with all these different things, talking about all these different things, and I'm thinking, man, if... This guy, he's got a great mind. If we could just tell him the right things, maybe he'll be convinced about who God is. The last morning, I was making oatmeal. And as I was making oatmeal, I, I don't know, I turned or something like that and my pot spilled and it went all over the place and it was a big mess. And his brother looked over. And he's like watching me intently. I was like, oh, and I just began to pick it back up and start to put new oatmeal in and make another 
batch. And he said, oh, this is the real deal. If that had been me, I would have been cussing up a storm. You know, who we become, who we are, how we treat people, is one of the greatest witnesses that we can possibly be to this dark world. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we long for your spirit to change us from the inside out. We long to understand what you were trying to teach Moses, that we'd only believe in Christ and and allow that to be what is our refuge in the storms of life, that we would be hidden in Christ, that it doesn't matter what people say anymore. It doesn't matter how people treat us or how wrong they are. It simply matters that we're loved by the God of the universe. And he's got his arms open wide for us. And Father, may that enable us to open our arms wide for the people on this planet who desperately need your warm embrace. Father, give us your compassion. Help us to learn of you that you are gentle and lowly of heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.